Hello and welcome back to another episode of A Cozy Christmas Podcast. I'm your host, Art, and the game is afoot. That's right, today we are going to be talking about Sherlock Holmes and Ebenezer Scrooge. Well, last week I was able to go and see Gerald Dickens perform his one-man show of A Christmas Carol. And thanks to the pandemic and other life events, it has been a couple years since I've been able to see it. I It was such a wonderful show that he put on in Omaha. I think he will have another tour coming up out on the East Coast later this Christmas season. So if you are in an area where you can catch his performance, I would highly recommend it. Uh, again, Gerald Dickens is the great-great-grandson of Charles Dickens, and he has been a guest on our show before, uh, last year in December. I was had the opportunity to interview him, and it was definitely a highlight of my Christmas season. Uh, but this year, uh, my wife and I were able to go, and it's put on by the Historical Society, uh, the Douglas County Historical Society in Omaha, and it was a, a afternoon tea and performance. They rented out a school. It was a nice a nice school. So for the afternoon tea, we, we were in this open area where uh, that had beautifully decorated tables. I you know I was thinking maybe tea and some cookies or something, but you know they brought out fresh brewed loose leaf tea, and then uh, the the snack was actually a quiche, and it was really good. Some kind of chicken and asparagus quiche I think I'm not sure but it was it was delicious and uh, there were some other little goodies on the table as well to uh, to snack on and then the tea was was really good and enjoyed that but then the performance was it's in it was in a different place this year and so it's actually a theater in the high school I really liked that setting because you know the lights were able to be dimmed he was on stage it felt more theatrical and I could tell he was really he was on point uh, this year uh, that's one of the benefits of seeing it multiple times. Uh, you get, you can compare it to past performances. And I think he even said this in his blog. I think that was one of the best performances, if not the best one that uh, I've seen. And I, I'm just amazed at how many times he's done this story over however many years. I think it was the uh, mid 90s he started and it still seems fresh in a lot of ways. You could still see the emotion on his face, you know, when he's doing the scenes, especially towards the end, when he's, uh, you know, doing the scenes with Bob Cratchit crying over Tiny Tim. I mean, the anguish is so authentic. He's a fantastic actor, but, uh, you know, also it's just a fantastic story and, and you can't help but get caught up in it. But uh, yeah, this year was probably the best I'd ever seen. And that was just a lot of fun to be able to go and do that. We weren't able to to meet and chat this year because he's trying to you know stay healthy on this trip, and so all the the meet and greet and autograph sessions were were canceled this year. Although you were able to turn in some material that he would autograph uh, before the show, and uh, I picked up uh, yet another new edition of a Christmas Carol uh, that has a, a cookbook in it as well. So. Uh, I'll be probably posting a video about that here in the next month or so. I want to do a video of all the different Christmas Carol editions I have uh, so you can get a chance to see some of those. Yeah, I, I'm looking forward to baking some treats out of that uh, Christmas Carol cookbook. 
I will link in the show notes uh, a link to his blog and website. Uh, also, he has just published a book. Gerald Dickens has just published a book called Dickens and Staplehurst, a biography of a rail crash. And it tells the, the true story of, it's, it's nonfiction. It tells the story of when Dickens was involved in a horrific train crash. And he explores the, the passengers, the life of the passengers, the story of how that happened, the history behind it all, and, and the psychological impact it had on Dickens for the rest of his life. It's quite a significant event in in the life of uh, Charles Dickens, and I'm looking forward to reading it. I have it on order right now, and I'll be sure to talk about that either here or on my book podcast, the Bookshelf Odyssey podcast. I do have another podcast I started this year that's just mostly book-related, and I interview authors, read stories, things of that nature, so kind of a spinoff of what I do here. Anyway, those are just a, some rambling thoughts of my kickoff to the Christmas season with uh, Gerald Dickens and A Christmas Carol. Uh, Just a wonderful start to this year's Christmas celebrations. Today's interview will be with Mark Shanahan. He is a playwright and director. He has recently written and directed a new play called A Sherlock Carol. It combines two of some of my favorite things, Sherlock Holmes and Ebenezer Scrooge. And the website says, Two beloved classic tales, one thrilling new mystery. A Sherlock Carol is a heartwarming holiday production for all ages and a theatrical experience you'll never forget. Reunite with the characters you love from Charles Dickens and Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. Now brought together in a story of intrigue and suspense with a helping of holiday cheer. When a grown-up, Tiny Tim, asks Sherlock Holmes to investigate the peculiar death of Ebenezer Scrooge, the great detective must use his tools of deduction to get to the bottom of the crime. But it is a dark and treacherous Christmas Eve, and once again the holiday is haunted by the spirits of the past, present, and future. And so that is the story of a Sherlock Carol. Tickets are on sale now. And I will have a link in the show notes to uh, where you can buy tickets. I think this sounds, this sounds so fascinating. (laughs) I wish I could see it. I wish I was in New York to see it. If you are out there, I'm just straight up going to recommend you check it out and let me know how it turns out if you do, Uh, because this sounds, this sounds really, really amazing. Definitely would be a play I would go to if I were in the area. All right, so I guess without further ado, here's the interview with Mark Shanahan. Welcome to uh, the Cozy Christmas Podcast. I have a very special guest with me today. His name is Mark Shanahan. He is a playwright and director and has just is recently working on producing a play called The Sherlock Carol where we have the worlds of Christmas Carol and Sherlock Holmes collide in what to me sounds like one of the most interesting plays I've heard of yet. Uh, so Mark, welcome to the Cozy Christmas Podcast. Hey, Art. Thanks. I'm glad to be here. I, I first came across your play. It was being advertised on Instagram. I think I saw it there and I just got really excited. <laughs> like, <laughs> I, I got to talk to somebody from this. This sounds so fascinating. 
<laughs> I'm glad you did. Yeah. Yeah. So tell us a little bit about, about yourself and about this play. What, what's it about? Sure. Um, the play is called a Sherlock Carol and it's a combination, uh, a mashup, if you want to call it that between um, the works of Arthur Conan Doyle and Charles Dickens, where uh, a now grown up tiny Tim approaches the great detective Sherlock Holmes and asks him to investigate the mysterious death of his benefactor, Ebenezer Scrooge. And along the way, while Holmes takes on the case, he meets a lot of different characters from uh, A Christmas Carol. Uh, the play is performed by six actors uh, taking on multiple roles. And some of them are familiar. Some of them are uh, crossovers from the two worlds. And it really is just such a love letter, not only to the characters that I've loved so long uh, in, in both of these authors' work, but also a love letter to the theater because it's really a play about playmakers, about how these actors are like spirits guiding our way, um, creating with the flip of a hat, a new character every time they walk on stage. And we put it together uh, with an extraordinary group of people here in New York City, off Broadway at New World Stages. And I can't believe my good fortune to work with a cast of unbelievably talented veteran Broadway performers and uh, a design team that uh, is decorated up and down with Tony and Nobi and all sorts of uh, nominations and awards of New York's uh, best designers. And as I've sat there in previews watching it all come to life, even though I'm always worried about, can we get this lighting cue right? And should we change this line and all that? What it is for me is a chance to sit there with characters of my love and enter that world for a few hours uh, every night as we're putting the show together. And it seems like such a joy. Yeah. Yeah. That's got to be fun. I'm almost imagining it's like when you're a kid and you're playing, you got your GI Joes over here, your Transformers over here, and, and they all, all come together in one big battle or something. It really is. It's like, <laughs> yeah. you know, you used to have those bags, your Star Wars figures could, you know, go toe to toe with Superman. You could put them all right. together, everyone from your imagination. And it does feel a little bit like that. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, now you had mentioned, so this play will be in New York City. That's right. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Okay. Um, so for those of you outside of New York, you have a long commute, but it's, it might be worth it. <laughs> it might be worth it. <laughs> well, we're hoping that in the future, it'll come to a, a town near you too. So if it all goes well. Yeah, absolutely. I have really grown to appreciate uh, the theater, especially the last few years. We, we have, I have a, one of my kids got really uh, interested into doing theater and in high school. And um, then maybe it's just the pandemic that has restricted us from having access to it. That has really made me miss it more. So yeah. has that been a challenge for you to try to work around some of those things? It really has. I'll tell you um, for those of us who make a living in the theater and work and love the theater, it was um, an entirely upsetting experience to have the curtain come down all across the world and to think, well, we can't come together to create audiences. That's what we do. Plays aren't like movies. They aren't like books. They aren't like TV shows. There are something that, you know, the thing that is so terrific about it is when you go to the theater, you're also going to the theater. You're sitting there with other people who woke up that morning and decided to do that strange thing called create an audience together, whether they knew it or not, and come, uh, come join with each other to um, have an experience. And when we shut down, there was a lot of anxiety and there are times where we thought, gee, you know, will we ever go back to being in a theater again? Is it going to be ethical to ask people to congregate? Will it be something that we can do? And, and it was something that, you know, I really missed desperately, but I also knew it was time to sit still 
and think about what it means for a while um, to make plays. Uh, it's funny, we were, the month before March 2020, when the world shut down, we were doing a, um, a reading of a Sherlock Carol and planning it for that year. And um, when we decided to put it all on hold and see what the world would be like, you know, the following year, uh, we had to spend time figuring out what we want to do with it. And in a strange way, the play feels more resonant this year than ever because embedded in it is the uh, story of of a Christmas carol, um, also a story about the reclamation of a person's soul, of what it means to take mm -hmm. care of your community, uh, to take care of each other. And it hits the ear and the heart just a little bit differently here in, uh, in, in December and November and December of 2021 in a good way, I think. So... Yeah, during the entire experience, I had to pivot and do different things. God knows there's a lot of theater online that we were all making, and I ended up making a lot of radio shows, including a couple of um, uh, broadcasts of A Christmas Carol, which uh, had some incredible actors. Uh, did one with Christopher Plummer right before his unfortunate passing, and mm. I got to investigate the, the stories last year uh, making radio programs also uh, doing them. So theater artists love to tell stories, and however we get to do it, we will find mm -hmm. our way. <laughs> yeah, I love telling stories and I love reading. I love hearing them. You know, it's just a powerful medium to, to get our, our, our story to, out to people. Well, for you, I mean, even with your podcast, the entire, it's based around Christmas, but I know that you feel that so much of Christmas is telling stories and the traditions, mm -hmm. but how they change and what mm -hmm. the story of, of the holiday is and how it can be retold in many times in many ways as the old song goes. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So can, can you tell us, uh, briefly this your story how did you become a playwright how did you become a director well i appreciate the question i uh <laughs> I, it's such a circuitous thing i actually had terrible stage fright when i was a kid and i had a good teacher who put me on stage in high school and there was uh no no turning back after that i spent uh, a long time uh, as an actor on stages around the country and here in new york as an actor i was um working in a lot of different theaters, uh, pitching plays. And some of those theaters said, well, you should direct that. And I ended up uh, taking the reins at some theaters that I felt very comfortable and supported at doing over the years and then kept branching out into directing. And um, for a short while, my wife was an artistic director of a theater upstate New York. Her name is Jen Waldman and, and her theater is the, was the Hangar Theater in Ithaca, New York. And while she was looking for plays for her program, I would notice that it was hard to find an affordable classic or an affordable uh, small cast uh, comedy. Or, and I started thinking of the ones that I've directed and thought, well, maybe I should try my hand at it. And that was a number of years ago. And I've, I've done it a few times. I've been fortunate enough to have some plays that I've written, produced off Broadway and around the country at different theaters. And I like to wear all three hats still, um, actor, writer, director. And the truth of the matter is this play came to life because I was doing a, a acting in a play a few years ago with my friend Drew McVitie, who plays Sherlock Holmes in our Sherlock Carol. We were doing a production of The Weir together, the Connor McPherson ghost story, a wonderful play. And we were down in the dressing room. And because we were in the most of the play until the last 15 minutes, uh, when we walked off stage and would go downstairs into the dressing room and talk, and I think those conversations led to me saying, you know, Drew, I had this idea for the Sherlock Holmes and Christmas Carol mashup. And he said, well, you should write it. And uh, I kept thinking he would be great in it. So I sat down and I wrote it. And every time I, um, every time I finished a scene or another 10 pages, uh, I would send it to him and I'd say, what do you think of this? And he'd say, send me 10 more. <laughs> and he kept, uh, kept me going. And before I knew it, I had the draft and we did a little reading of it. And 
when Drew read it, it just seemed such a natural fit on him. And he said, we have to do it. And here we are a couple of years later doing it together. So, Oh, that's neat. Yeah. yeah I, I love that. That encouragement you get too. It's yeah. Uh, I was going to ask, you know, why, why did you pick Sherlock and, and Scrooge? Well, I'll tell you, <laughs> um, <laughs> I was that kid uh, under the covers when I was supposed to be sleeping with a flashlight. I remember reading The Hound of the Baskervilles and, and I yeah. loved it. I've done as a director and an actor, a lot of um, Sherlock Holmes plays. They seem to have handed me a few over the years at different theaters around the country. And, and I was always kind of marveling at how people showed up in droves for the character. Uh, they just flocked to the theater whenever we would do a, a Holmes play. And interestingly enough, around the country, uh, a lot of theaters uh, program a Christmas carol to the holiday season because it will bring in an audience that uh, might not go to the theater during the year or will be the first experience for a lot of young theater goers to see a Christmas carol. It might be the first time they're ever at a live play. Theaters count on it. They rely on it because people have such a passion for that story. And so as I looked and I thought, wow, the, here are two great passions that people show up for as audience members. Is there a way to put them both together? And it had been in the back of my mind for some years. And, uh, you know, sometimes while riding the subway here in New York, I would suddenly think, well, maybe it would start this way. or Maybe I could integrate it that way or this way or that way. But uh, after sort of sitting on it for a while, it, when I finally sat down to do it, it came sort of flying out of my fingertips because of my love for the characters in both um, A Christmas Carol and the Sherlock Holmes stories. It seemed like a natural fit to have them meet in some ways. And even now when I sit there and I see Ebenezer Scrooge on stage talking to Sherlock Holmes, I think, my goodness, this seems like, um, you know, it's <laughs> kind of a riot to see two, two greats together and uh, mm -hmm. uh, talking to each other and in the midst of a mystery all their own. I get a kick out of it as an audience member is what I'm trying to say now. Yeah, yeah. To me, like I said, I, I can't wait to see it. Uh, it, it. Hopefully it'll come out my way sometime. I hope so, yeah. Yeah. I should say also, you know, there's a, I'll just say this also. It's like, there's a funny thing about the theater and these characters. I've read that Charles Dickens would, when he wrote A Christmas Carol, locked himself in his study and his family could hear him thrashing about in there and um, performing all the characters and laughing and crying. And he would walk the streets for hours at night coming up with the idea mm -hmm. of these incredible characters, which have, you know, changed so many lives and in, in, in the course of literature too. And also Conan Doyle's Sherlock Holmes seems to be a character that came fully to fruition, but uh, in the, in the books, but when you go back upon his history on the stage, William Gillette, who was the first actor ever to put the character on stage, struggled to say, what do I do with him? What do I do with Sherlock Holmes? He's just a, a wonderful detective and famously wrote to Doyle and said, can I marry him? And he said, you can marry him. You can kill him. You can do whatever you want with him, sir. <laughs> and, uh, you know, it, it's, it's, there've been so many iterations of Holmes and so many great actors who portrayed him. And some of them are comics. Some of them are dark. Some of them are modern. Some of them are action movies. Some of them mm -hmm. are think pieces. The character is so malleable that you can dramatize him in any number of ways. And so, too, I think back to Dickens, who made a secondary career of going around and reading uh, Christmas Carol out loud. And it was said that people would listen to him read the play, read the story and, and uh, you know, get terrified when he played Jacob Marley and cry when he read Tiny Tim sections. There's mm -hmm. always been something of a bit of theatricality about both of these stories, both of these tales as it grips the audience. Yeah, they're they're kind of larger than life characters almost that yeah. you yeah. can just adapt in plug into different situations. Yeah. 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 This a uh, couple of weeks ago, I got to see um, Dickens's great, great grandson, Gerald Dickens do. Uh, Did you? Yeah. He does a one man show of Christmas Carol, keeping the family tradition going. Isn't that great? I've heard about that. I'd love to see it. Someday. Oh yeah. my goodness. Yeah. I, I've had the 
privilege of seeing it off and on over the last 10 years or so. He, he comes out to the Midwest. Uh, well, I interviewed him last year on the podcast. That was, that was like my dream come true, you know, of course, yeah. <laughs> but, oh, it was, uh, they had rented out a, like a high school's theater, uh, just so that people could spread out better mm-hmm. than where they usually meet. And of course, uh, you know, having the lights dim and the stage lights on and, and, you know, he's just at home on the stage, I bet. but this story is so powerful. You know, he's been performing it since like mid nineties, I think. And uh, still the scenes where he, he's doing Bob Cratchit crying over tiny Tim. And I think those are authentic tears still. Yeah. It's, it's a story that still moves him having done it for so long. It just, that passion is still there. I think because the story is so strong and, Absolutely. and theatrical, like you're saying. Yeah. It's a story that continues to move all of us. Um, every time um, I go back to it and look at it, I think, you know, he really, Dickens came up with things that struck to our core about how we can use our time better. You know, I always think that a Scrooge actually is usually referred to as someone who's miserly or mean, but actually shouldn't mm-hmm. it really be a compliment. Shouldn't <laughs> being a Scrooge be someone who's willing to change, someone who's willing to accept that there are things about them that, that uh, things about all of us that we can work on. We can use our time better with what time we've been given to help other people. And that a Scrooge should really be somebody who's willing to change. And it's a compliment to mm. call someone a Scrooge in that regard. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, I actually have a t-shirt that says Mr. Scrooge on it. And <laughs> everyone knows me that knows I like Christmas and Somebody once mentioned, she said, I, I don't think that t-shirt's quite accurate for you. <laughs> <laughs> and I said, well, this is Scrooge, you know, post-reclamation. <laughs> yeah. uh, that it's like, okay, yeah, that I could see. Okay. <laughs> it is one of the fun things in our play is also, I think people come surprised, you know, we all, in, in, in A Christmas Carol, you only hear of Scrooge being happy at the very end with a few pages where he runs yeah. around and gives people presents and says to Bob Cratchit, I'm going to help Tiny Tim. But when you think about it, he spent the rest of his time being that person. And in our play, um, Holmes just sort of opens the play, having met his own dark night of the soul. Professor Moriarty is dead. He doesn't want to hang out with Watson anymore. He doesn't have any sense of purpose. And then this mystery about um, somebody who did change and did find his purpose comes along. And he looks into not only how this person died, but what can make a person change. And that's really the engine of our story. And as he investigates it, he learns a little bit about himself. And if it also combines Conan Doyle's only Christmas story, the blue carbuncle. And uh, if those two things go right, if he can find the blue carbuncle and solve the mystery of Ebenezer Scrooge's death, then maybe we'll get back to Sherlock Holmes we all want him to be. Um, And and I, I think that's sort of the fun is that people go think they might come to the theater going, oh, I think I know what this is. But then you remember Scrooge actually in our play is the Scrooge who was a wonderful man, not a miser, but somebody who changed everybody's lives because he was a great, generous soul. Oh, well, now I want to watch it more than ever. <laughs> that sounds that sounds amazing. So uh, talking about some of the characters, can you just walk us through a little bit about some of the main characters, the actors sure. who play them and, and give us sure. some detail there? As I say, Drew McVitie's playing our Sherlock uh, and um, great Tom Sesma is playing our Scrooge who appears in various forms for us. The rest of the cast is filled out by Anissa Felix, Dan Dominguez, excuse me, Isabel Keating and Mark Price. And they all play multiple roles as we kind of uh, wander through uh, the different tales of uh, Conan Doyle and Dickens. 
And we get to meet, um, for instance, uh, Scrooge's housekeeper, Mrs. Dilber, who appears briefly in A Christmas Carol, and it's fun to get to know more about her. Uh, of course, Watson is uh, comes in and out of our tale in different ways. Um, Anissa plays Emma Wiggins, a variation of Bill Wiggins, uh, one of the Baker Street Irregulars. We uh, get a brief glimpse at uh, Irene Adler from the, the stories of Holmes, but then also some lesser known characters like Mr. Topper from A Christmas Carol and Old Joe from A Christmas Carol, the mm. Covent Garden salesman. So it's fun to revisit uh, even the lesser known characters and see what more impact they might have in this story. Uh, as these characters, as these actors all, you know, change costumes frantically in the wings, um, but then walk out and make it look so effortless as they fully embody another character. Just speaks to the power of Dickens, I think. Some of the, those minor characters, I, I want to know more, and they feel so already flesh and blood and rich, and like there's this huge background to them. I know. We, we've also gotten to add some of the lineage of the characters, like uh, who Fan's granddaughter might be and sure. what the next generation of Fezziwigs might be. And so it's really <laughs> a fun thing to sit in the audience. I've had such a riot, uh, Art. I got, it's such a kick. I sit in the audience and sometimes sit in the balcony in particular so I can hear uh, down below. And when somebody says the name Fezziwig or Cratchit, there is a mm-hmm. murmur of recognition with a smile. And it feels like the audience is coming to visit old friends in a way they haven't seen before or get a new visit with them. And I sort of forgot because I was working on it that that when someone who hasn't seen it, because, you know, when you're working on something, you kind of lose sight. You can't see the forest for the trees. And then we get an audience who has no idea what to expect. And they sit there. And as soon as Dr. Cratchit says, you can call me by my childhood nickname, Tiny Tim, the audience one night just started applauding for him. And I thought, oh, my gosh, of course, they don't know. We all want to know. Tiny Tim survived. He grew up. He became a doctor he helped other people like he he's, oh, cool. he's all right yeah. he's okay and when you hear the audience applaud for tiny tim having survived you realize how deeply the characters have touched us how deeply entrenched they are in our psyches you know? oh that's neat that's neat yeah. i wanted to ask too uh, about some of the challenges i know we, we talked a little bit about the challenges of of the uh pandemic and and all that yeah. did that play in with practice and performance or are there other challenges that you know as a like a theater newbie like me wouldn't be aware of. Yeah, it does feel very different post-pandemic. And of course, it's not really post-pandemic. It's actually, we're still in it, but meaning that the theaters are open and people are trying to figure out how to navigate this world. Um, The fact of the matter is we have to be really vigilant uh, at rehearsal and at the theater to make sure that, and ethical, to make sure that people are safe and healthy if we're going to come together and congregate. In rehearsals, uh, I wore a mask. All the actors wear masks unless they're on stage. When they walk to the wings, they immediately put a mask back on. We have COVID testing uh, twice a week with our company and anyone who uh, is involved with it, uh, also not just the actors, has to be tested. And we try to keep ourselves Uh, really safe. Now that we've begun performances, for instance, our understudies have to stay separate from the actors so that um, if an outbreak does happen in our company, that our our, uh, understudies are are separate and and stay healthy too. Um, We have testing and people who show up to the theater have to show their uh, vaccination card. We're trying to make sure that people feel safe, but not only that, that they are safe as they come Mm. to the theater. Uh, and, And I think being really rigorous and diligent about it, it's really easy at a certain point to let your guard down, to start to feel comfortable and to know that this thing is still waiting in its own wings to try and say, yeah, I wanna disrupt your life. But um, if we're smart about it and if we're vigilant, we can learn to navigate a way of making plays, of coming together, making audiences 
uh, even though that there is still something that we have to be thinking about um, at all times, and and rightly so, rightly so. Yeah, uh, I know out in Iowa, I think a lot of folks let their guard down. <laughs> it, we had a big spike this summer and uh, all that, but uh, yeah, um, I, I I'm glad we're able to figure out a way to be able to meet safely or try to anyway. I, I think things like this can be so helpful during you know, these dark times, <laughs> these difficult times to, to have that outlet of creativity, to have a place to tell a story. It can be healing. It can be helpful. Not for nothing. You know, we've all spent a lot of time in the last year and a half isolated, separated. Christmas can be a hard time for a lot of people anyway, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, as joyous as it is, it's also a time where people can feel alone or isolated. And I think that our play is a very positive one. It's a powerful message uh, that Dickens and Doyle have sent down to us that we're trying to reinvestigate. Um, they're two very good collaborators, I have to say. <laughs> I feel their presence all the time. But yeah, um, we, we've all spent time on our own and maybe feeling more isolated from others than we have in, in the past. There's all sorts of other ways we sometimes feel isolated, staring at our phones and um, not necessarily connecting the way we should. And I do feel that those who are coming to the theater will get a powerful and positive and happy message for the holiday, but also a chance to be with other people, to participate and feel that they're doing something that is is joyous and maybe brings them a little bit of cheer. I know know you have to get going here soon, but... uh... Before you go, do you have any favorite Christmas memories or traditions or stories from your own life that you'd like to share with us? Yeah, you're kind for asking. Um, yeah, I grew up in New York City. So, I mean, I'm one of those rare, a lot of people who come from New York, you know, move away or a lot of people move to New York. I always say when you live in, grow up in New York, you don't have that dream of moving to New York, but uh, <laughs> I, I still love it. I really love the city and I particularly do love it at Christmas time. There is nothing like how this city gets into the spirit of it. I have always loved my trip to the Rockefeller Center tree. I have always loved uh, going to Radio City to see the Christmas spectacular. But my family is here in different apartments around the city and around uh, Christmas time, even though it was, I certainly miss my own grandparents, uh, something awful at Christmas. But uh, I will say that the city is a great place. This city, New York City, is a great place to kind of experience the, that magic at this time of year. It's amazing to me how whether it's a drugstore putting up just a little tinsel in its uh, front window or uh, a department store with full-on displays in their, in their own windows, how much the city gets into it. And, you know, of course, there are times where you go, gosh, it's been commercialized to the nth degree and it can get you down when it starts happening already at, at Halloween. Uh, they put up some, some Christmas decorations up. But, you know, the fact of the matter is, all of that is just the trappings, but there is that uh, really great spirit. We meet uh, with my family here, my sister's house uh, on Christmas Eve, and then another meal on Christmas Day. It, I've never missed one. I've never missed one with my family in all my my life. And now I have an 11-year-old daughter, and we're an interfaith family. We celebrate Hanukkah as well. And it's really, it still is the sort of best thing in the world. Christmas and the holidays are a destination on the calendar all year long. So as much as I love the summer, as much as I love the spring, as much as I endure the winter still, it's always that destination <laughs> at the end of the year to sort yeah. of take stock. And um, I'm lucky. I'm lucky to have to, a lot of good ones in my back pocket and hope for some more. This one's proven to be as, as good as any already because the play is making me so happy. Oh, uh, And so how long will the play be running? We're in previews now. We open officially on Monday, which is the Monday before Thanksgiving. Okay. And it runs through January 2nd at New World Stages. It's um, 
Every day except for Tuesday. Tuesday is our dark day off Broadway uh, so that the Broadway houses who are dark on Monday, those people who go to that can come. <laughs> All the people involved in Broadway can come on a Monday and see our show. Yeah, and we have a, a great schedule with a lot of matinees too. I know that people from out of town who uh, just come in for the day love to go to a matinee. So um, we're really excited that that there's good word of mouth, that there's buzz and that it's offering something that I think um, people are excited about. Great, great. Well, uh, tickets are on sale now and I, I'm actually scheduled this episode this episode to drop on monday the day you got started i oh, are, you're starting so uh that was i didn't plan that so that's good. <laughs> that's just how it works we'll pretend you did and i'll, I'll say great timing art way to go <laughs> <laughs> yeah so the tickets are on sale now i'll have those links in the show notes for folks if they're in, in the area or want to make the trip in you'll get a kick out of the website is a sherlockcarroll.com and when you see the picture there's a little smoke coming out of his pipe and there's a little snowflake it, you it's, it's the kind of thing i think art would like i'll put it that way yes uh, i I've, I've been to the website and saw that and i thought oh that's great i love it <laughs> <laughs> exactly uh well mark thanks for taking some time out of your busy schedule to to do this i i really appreciate it all right it's my great pleasure and i'm so um uh pleased that you asked uh, asked me to come talk about the play and that I appreciate you getting the word out about it. It's so nice of you. Sure thing. Sure thing. Well, break a leg and all that. And <laughs> I, I hope that you and your family have a, a Merry Christmas this year. You too. Have a great holiday. Well, for today's story, I wanted to read a mystery to kind of help tie in with the theme of Sherlock Holmes and and the play and all that. And I know Holmes has at least one Christmas-based mystery but it was a bit longer than what I felt like I had time for. So I came across this story by Thomas Hardy called The Thieves Who Couldn't Help Sneezing. Now, if you know Thomas Hardy, you know that his works are often gloomy, depressing, heartbreaking. He's he's not necessarily known for his comedy writing. But in this story, he really writes a fun a little short story, a little little bit of a mystery. Well, you'll just have to you'll you'll see what I mean. This story was first published in the December 1877 issue of Father Christmas, so it was written earlier in his writing career. He is a, a well-known Victorian writer of books such as Tess of the D'Urbervilles and Jude the Obscure, and Far from the Maddening Crowd, and he has also written some wonderful poetry. I've read a lot of his books, not all of them yet, but I've read quite a few, and I'm really enjoying his writing. I found this to be such a great story. It's about a a young man named Hubert who stumbles across some burglars, some thieves, who steal his horse, Jerry, and now he has to find a way to recover uh, what's been taken from him. That's all I'll say. Well, I'll, I'll talk about it at the end. I just let me just go ahead and read the story here for you. So let me invite you to sit back and relax and enjoy the story of the thieves who couldn't help sneezing by Thomas Hardy. Many years ago, when oak trees now past their prime were about as large as elderly gentlemen's walking sticks, there lived in Wessex a yeoman's son whose name was Hubert. He was about fourteen years of age, and was as remarkable for his candor and lightness of heart, as for his physical courage, of which, indeed, he was a little vain. One cold Christmas Eve, his father, having no other help at hand, 
sent him on an important errand to a small town several miles from home. He traveled on horseback and was detained by the business till a late hour that evening. At last, however, it was completed. He returned to the inn, the horse was saddled, and he started on his way. His journey homeward lay through the Vale of Blackmore, a fertile but somewhat lonely district, in heavy clay roads and crooked lanes. In those days, too, a great part of it was thickly wooded. It must have been about nine o'clock when, riding along amid the overhanging trees upon his stout-legged cob, Jerry, and singing a Christmas carol to be in harmony with the season, Hubert fancied that he heard a noise among the bows. This recalled to his mind that the spot he was traversing bore an evil name. Men had been waylaid there. He looked at Jerry and wished he had been of any other color than light gray, for on this account the docile animal's form was visible even here in the dense shade. "'What do I care?' he said aloud, after a few minutes of reflection. "'Jerry's legs are too nimble to allow any highwaymen to come near me.' "'Ha <laughs> ha, indeed!' was said in a deep voice, and the next moment a man darted from the thicket on his right hand, another from the thicket on his left hand, and another from a tree trunk a few yards ahead. Hubert's bridle was seized, he was pulled from his horse, and although he struck out with all his might, as a brave boy would naturally do, he was overpowered. His arms were tied behind him, his legs bound tightly together, and he was thrown into the ditch. The robbers, whose faces he could now dimly perceive to be artificially blackened, at once departed, leading off the horse. As soon as Hubert had a little recovered himself, he found that by great exertion he was able to extricate his legs from the cord. But, in spite of every endeavor, his arms remained bound as fast as before. All, therefore, that he could do was to rise to his feet and proceed on his way with his arms behind him, and trust to chance for getting them unfastened. He knew that it would be impossible to reach home on foot that night, and in such a condition, but he walked on. Owing to the confusion which this attack caused in his brain, he lost his way and would have been inclined to lie down and rest till morning among the dead leaves had he not known the danger of sleeping without wrappers in a frost so severe. So he wandered further onwards, his arms wrung and numbed by the cord which pinioned him, and his heart aching for the loss of poor Jerry who never had been known to kick or bite or show a single vicious habit. He was not a little glad when he discerned through the trees a distant light. Towards this he made his way and presently found himself in front of a large mansion with flanking wings, gables, and towers, the battlements and chimneys showing their shapes against the stars. All was silent, but the door stood wide open, it being from this door that the light shone which had attracted him. On entering, he found himself in a vast apartment arranged as a dining hall and brilliantly illuminated. The walls were covered with a great deal of dark wainscoting, formed into molded panels, carvings, closet doors, and the usual fittings of a house of that kind. But what drew his attention most was the large table in the midst of the hall, upon which was spread a sumptuous supper, as yet untouched. Chairs were placed around, and it appeared as if something had occurred to interrupt the meal just at the time when all were ready to begin. Even had Hubert been so inclined, he could not have eaten in his helpless state, unless by dipping his mouth into the dishes, like a pig or cow. He wished first to obtain assistance, and was about to penetrate further into the house for that purpose when he heard hasty footsteps in the porch, 
and the words, Be quick! uttered in the deep voice which had reached him when he was dragged from the horse. There was only just time for him to dart under the table before three men entered the dining hall. Peeping from beneath the hanging edges of the tablecloth, he perceived that their faces, too, were blackened, which at once removed any remaining doubts he may have felt that these were the same thieves. Now then, said the first, the man with the deep voice, let us hide ourselves. They will all be back again in a minute. That was a good trick to get them out of the house, eh? Yes, you well imitated the cries of a man in distress, said the second. Excellently, said the third. But they will soon find out that it was a false alarm. Come, where shall we hide? It must be some place we can stay in for two or three hours to lull her in bed and asleep. Ah, I have it. Come this way. I have learnt that the further closet is not opened once in a twelve-month. It will serve our purpose exactly. The speaker advanced into a corridor which led from the hall. Creeping a little farther forward, Hubert could discern that the closet stood at the end, facing the dining hall. The thieves entered it and closed the door. Hardly breathing, Hubert glided forward to learn a little more of their intention, if possible, and coming close, he could hear the robbers whispering about the different rooms where the jewels, plate, and other valuables of the house were kept, which they plainly meant to steal. They had not been long in hiding when a gay chattering of ladies and gentlemen was audible on the terrace without. Hubert felt that it would not do to be caught prowling about the house unless he wished to be taken for a robber himself, and he slipped softly back to the hall, out the door, and stood in a dark corner of the porch, where he could see everything without himself being seen. In a moment or two a whole troop of personages came gliding past him into the house. There was an elderly gentleman and lady, eight or nine young ladies, as many young men, besides half a dozen men-servants and maids. The mansion had apparently been quite emptied of its occupants. "'Now, children and young people, we will resume our meal,' said the old gentleman. "'What that noise could have been I cannot understand. I never felt so certain in my life that there was a person being murdered outside my door.' Then the ladies began saying how frightened they had been, and how they had expected an adventure, and how it had ended in nothing at all. "'Wait a while,' said Hubert to himself. You'll have adventure enough by and by, ladies. It appeared that the young men and women were married sons and daughters of the old couple, who had come that day to spend Christmas with their parents. The door was then closed, Hubert being left outside in the porch. He thought this a proper moment for asking their assistance, and since he was unable to knock with his hands, began boldly to kick the door. Hello, what disturbance are you making here? said a footman who opened it, and seizing Hubert by the shoulder, he pulled him into the dining hall. "'Here's a strange boy I have found making a noise on the porch, Sir Simon.' Everybody turned. "'Bring him forward,' said Sir Simon, the old gentleman before mentioned. "'What were you doing there, my boy?' "'Why, his arms are tied,' said one of the ladies. "'Oh, poor fellow,' said another. Hubert at once began to explain that he had been waylaid on his journey home, robbed of his horse, and mercilessly left in this condition by the thieves. "'Only to think of it!' exclaimed Sir Simon. "'That's a likely story,' said one of the gentlemen guests incredulously. "'Doubtful, eh?' asked Sir Simon. "'Perhaps he's a robber himself,' suggested a lady. "'There is a curiously wild, wicked look about him, certainly.' Now that I examine him closely, 
said the old mother. Hubert blushed with shame, and instead of continuing his story and relating that robbers were concealed in the house, he doggedly held his tongue, and half resolved to let them find out their danger for themselves. Well, untie him, said Sir Simon. Come, since it is Christmas Eve, we'll treat him well. Here, my lad, sit down in that empty seat at the bottom of the table, and make as good a meal as you can. When you have had your fill, we will listen to more particulars of your story. The feast then proceeded, and Hubert, now at liberty, was not at all sorry to join in. The more they ate and drank, the merrier did the company become. The wine flowed freely, the logs flared up the chimney, the ladies laughed at the gentlemen's stories. In short, all went as noisily and as happily as a Christmas gathering in old times possibly could do. Hubert, in spite of his hurt feelings at their doubt of his honesty, could not help being warmed, both in mind and in body, by the good cheer, the scene, and the example of hilarity set by his neighbors. At last he laughed as heartily at their stories and repartees as the old baronet, Sir Simon, himself. When the meal was almost over, one of the sons, who had drunk a little too much wine, after the manner of men in that century, said to Hubert, "'Well, my boy, how are you? Can you take a pinch of snuff?' He held out one of the snuff boxes, which were then becoming common among young and old throughout the country. "'Oh, thank you,' said Hubert, accepting a pinch. "'Tell the ladies who you are, what you are made of, and what you can do.' the young man continued, slapping Hubert upon the shoulder. Mm, certainly, said our hero, drawing himself up and thinking it best to put a bold face on the matter. I am a traveling magician. Indeed? What shall we hear next? Can you call up spirits from the vasty deep, young wizard? I can conjure up a tempest in a cupboard, Hubert replied. Ha <laughs> ha, said the old baronet, pleasantly rubbing his hands. We must see this performance. Girls, don't go away. Here's something to be seen. Not dangerous, I hope, said the old lady. Hubert rose from the table. Hand me your snuff-box, please, he said to the young man who had made free with him. And now, he continued, without the least noise, follow me. If any of you speak, it will break the spell. They promised obedience. He entered the corridor and, taking off his shoes, went on tiptoe to the closet door the guests advancing in a silent group at a little distance behind him. Hubert next placed a stool in front of the door and, by standing upon it, was tall enough to reach to the top. He then, just as noiselessly, poured all the snuff from the box along the upper edge of the door and with a few short puffs of breath blew the snuff through the chink into the interior of the closet. He held up his finger to the assembly that they might be silent. Dear me, what's that? said the old lady, after a minute or two had elapsed. A suppressed sneeze had come from inside the closet. Hubert held up his finger again. How very singular, whispered Sir Simon. This is most interesting. Hubert took advantage of the moment to gently slide the bolt of the closet door into place. More snuff, he said calmly. More snuff, said Sir Simon. Two or three gentlemen passed their boxes, and the contents were blown in at the top of the closet. Another sneeze, not quite so well suppressed as the first, was heard. Then another, which seemed to say that it would not be suppressed under any circumstances whatever. At length there arose a perfect storm of sneezes. 
Excellent, excellent for one so young, said Sir Simon. I am much interested in this trick of throwing the voice, called, I believe, ventriloquism. More snuff, said Hubert. More snuff, said Sir Simon. Sir Simon's man brought a large jar of the best-scented scotch. Hubert once more charged the upper chink of the closet and blew the snuff into the interior, as before. Again, he charged and again, emptying the whole contents of the jar. The tumult of sneezes became really extraordinary to listen to. There was no cessation. It was like wind, rain, and sea battling in a hurricane. I believe there are men inside, and that is no trick at all, exclaimed Sir Simon, the truth flashing on him. There are, said Hubert. They are come to rob the house, and they are the same who stole my horse. The sneezes changed to spasmodic groans. One of the thieves, hearing Hubert's voice, cried, Oh, mercy, mercy, let us out of this. Where's my horse? said Hubert. Tied to the tree in the hollow behind Short's gibbet. Mercy, mercy, let us out, or we shall die of suffocation. <coughs> All the Christmas guests now perceived that this was no longer sport, but serious earnest. Guns and cudgels were procured. All the men servants were called in and arranged in position outside the closet. At a signal, Hubert withdrew the bolt and stood on the defensive, but the three robbers, far from attacking them, were found crouching in the corner, gasping for breath. They made no resistance, and, being pinioned, were placed in an outhouse till the morning. Hubert now gave the remainder of his story to the assembled company, and was profusely thanked for the services he had rendered. Sir Simon pressed him to stay over the night and accept the use of the best bedroom the house afforded, which had been occupied by Queen Elizabeth and King Charles successively when on their visits to this part of the country. But Hubert declined, being anxious to find his horse, Jerry, and to test the truth of the robber's statements concerning him. Several of the guests accompanied Hubert to the spot behind the gibbet, alluded to by the thieves as where Jerry was hidden. When they reached the knoll and looked over, behold, there the horse stood, uninjured and quite unconcerned. At sight of Hubert, he neighed joyfully, and nothing could exceed Hubert's gladness at finding him. He mounted, wished his friends good night, and cantered off into the direction they pointed out, reaching home safely about four o'clock in the morning. <laughs> what a what a fun story! Uh, I I like Hubert. Um, I, I the first time I read it, I missed that he was only about fourteen years old. And I couldn't help but wonder why he didn't just, you know, tell the people there were robbers in the closet and call the police. But this, I, I think, I really think this is authentic te young teenager behavior here that he was going to tell them, but he was going to tell them in his own time. And it could be because of the way they treated him kind of in a condescending manner that he wanted to show them up a little bit along with doing what was right and you know revealing the the danger in the closet but he had to do it in a way that made him look like the hero and uh you know maybe he was just kind of making a point there that he was just as good of a uh, person as they were even though you know they were rich and perhaps he wasn't uh, as much uh, i i don't know i think maybe there were some minor class warfare going on there 
And I love at the end where they, you know, suddenly realize his value because of how he helped them. And they're offering him, you can stay the night, sleep in this bed. The king and queen have slept here and stayed here. You know, they, they want to give him this great honor. But all he cares about, he wants to find his horse. And he wants to go home. He wants to be who he is. And I, I love that. It was a fun story to read in keeping with the season, I think. So uh, I hope you enjoyed that. I enjoyed reading it uh, for sure. I will be reading stories throughout December as well as uh, dropping some interviews with some folks. But I, I'm really excited because I'm going to be reading for you this December A Christmas Carol. It's just a delight to read every year, and I'm looking forward to sharing that with you. I will be releasing it in segments throughout December, probably start it on Thanksgiving Day or that following Monday. I'm not quite sure yet how I'm going to divide it up into parts, but it'll be delivered on the podcast feed. I had this idea last year that this was going to be the big December project. And of course, I had plans to slowly work on it all year and get it all ready in time and all this. And of course, that didn't happen (laughs) until just a a month ago or so. But I've been working on that, getting it ready. And I'm so excited to read to you my favorite Christmas story, A Christmas Carol. So I I hope you will uh, stay tuned for that. Oh, one other quick announcement. I... Don't know if you saw my post on my Facebook page, the Cozy Christmas Facebook page, but uh, this podcast just hit 50,000 downloads since I began back in July of 2020. I just cannot believe how many of you have found this podcast and are downloading it and have been a support and encouragement and uh, just fans of the show. I am so grateful for each and every one of you. Uh, I'm just blown away by what you've helped this become. So thank you so much. And here's to another 50,000 downloads, right? I feel like I need to do something special for it. So I don't know. I'll have to think about it and uh, maybe bring it up in the next episode. See if I can come up with any good ideas. If you have any fun ideas on what to do to celebrate that, give give me a comment. Send, Send me a send me a, a, an email or something and, and let's let's toss around some ideas. I, I think that's just something fun we should celebrate. So thank you all to the uh, Cozy Christmas community, to the Christmas Podcast Network, who um, has just been such a uh, wonderful network to be a part of and, and such a positive atmosphere there. I am so glad to be um, podcasting alongside of so many of, of you wonderful wonderful people so thank you everyone all right enough enough of all that again i just i want to remind you that um, if you can't get enough of stories and uh, all the cozy chat of about books uh, i have started a new book podcast uh, a bookshelf odyssey and you can go to bookshelfodyssey.com and that'll take you to the podcast page and i've got author interviews i read stories and and just talk about books. So I hope you would enjoy that. Also, if you'd like to support the show in a financial way, there are links in the show notes that will uh, direct you on that. I have an Etsy store. I do have podcast merch available now, t-shirts as well. 
couple of different uh, websites for you to go and check out. And uh, I, I want to thank you. A couple of folks have already bought some t-shirts uh, with the Cozy Christmas Podcast logo on it. I have a couple of different styles of the logo that you might find of interest. So uh, you can do that. And proceeds go back into the podcast to help with equipment and different things that just help make this uh, a, a fun show. So thank you so much for those of you who have uh, are supporting the show financially. If you want to send in a story, please do uh, send send me a story at cozychristmaspodcast at gmail.com and I'll read your Christmas memories in an upcoming episode. So that's all I have for today. Thank you for listening. And so until next time, let me encourage you to be kind to each other and to do good and to remember that there is nothing in the world more irresistibly contagious than laughter and good humor. Have a very Merry Christmas.